0: Turn in your Bibles, if you would please, to the book of Colossians, the book of Colossians chapter one. Took a class one time, I think it was an Old Testament prophecy class, and um, there was a guy who was, the guy who was teaching the class, was a great guy, and he said, when we read the Bible, we read, thus saith the Lord. And he said, but as far as uh, modern day prophets and uh, do prophets exist, and we're thinking he's going to let us know exactly what he thinks, he says, here's what I would say, Whenever somebody comes before to tell you the word of the Lord, nowadays we have the Bible right here. So it's similar, but it's thus saith the Lord, I think. So there's a difference between the word of God and someone else telling you the word of God. But when we read from the scriptures, it is thus saith the Lord. It is thus saith the Lord. So what I'd like you to do now, just to kind of, just for in our own minds, it's just helpful to do, as we read this portion of Scripture, uh, since this is not something that's coming out of my sermon, but coming out of the Word of God, would you do me a favor and stand with me in honor of the reading of Scripture today? And read along silently as I read aloud, Colossians chapter 1, beginning in verse 24. This is what the Word of God says. Lord, we come before you asking you to add your blessing to the reading and the preaching and the hearing of your holy word. Lord, I ask that you would be with me as I seek to speak that which you would have us here today as your children and be with each and every one of us, Lord, as we look with forward with great anticipation to celebrating the birth of our Lord, our Savior, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Last week we kicked off our Crispin Sermon Series entitled Glorious announcement, spending time in the book of Colossians, a great place to be in during Advent, a great portion of scripture to focus on as we look forward to celebrating the birth of Christ on Christmas day. Now, perhaps you recall a a me mentioning a portion of a verse Colossians chapter three and verse 11 that I proposed to you as the theme of the book of Colossians. It was the latter part of verse 11 in uh, Colossians chapter three, verse 11, Christ is all And in all. Christ is all and in all. Last week we looked at the deity of Christ, the fact that Jesus is God, always was God, and always will be God. We took a bit of a different approach and didn't defend the doctrine per se, but instead sought to bring personal application to our lives when it comes to this essential doctrine of the faith. For the time being, our small group is sermon based, which means that we discuss, during our small group time, we discuss. Uh, the sermon that was preached the preceding Sunday. So one way I threw it out to our small group was this. If Jesus is God, so what? If Jesus is God, so what? What difference does that make in our lives on a day-to-day basis? What, how would you apply this truth, the fact that Jesus is God? Uh, certainly you want to be able to defend the faith you want to be able to stand for truth and explain this doctrine to people and to refute error Uh, and you particularly want to be able to explain this doctrine to naysayers in fact i had a, a conversation with somebody earlier this week and i've said this from the pulpit before there's a way that you can show a jehovah's witness that jesus is god from their new world translation so it's not like you've got to put theirs away and take out yours. God, in his wisdom and mercy and sovereignty, even though Jehovah's Witnesses have twisted and confused the word of God and changed it to be something that is not the word of God, still has left his fingerprints in there. And to take a Bible and to show, not a Bible, to take a New World Translation and show a Jehovah's Witness in their copy of that book that it says that Jesus is God, they now have to do what? They have to take that book home and realize that there's something within their, what they call the copy of the scriptures that shows them that Jesus is God. It's important to be able to do that. It's important to be able to uh, defend the faith. And I'd be happy to share that with you at another time if that's something that interests you. But that's not the approach that we looked at last week. I wanted us to take a different approach and look firstly at our own lives, the application of the word of God in our own lives. Glorious announcement. The babe in the manger is God always will be God and even was very God before he was a babe. Now, remember that verse, that theme verse that I brought up, Colossians 3 verse 11, Christ is all and what? In all. Today, we're going to focus on the latter part of that verse, the fact that Christ is in all, certainly in all of his children. Now, if you've been a Christian in the good old US of A, really for any length of time, uh, chances are you speak a little bit of what I call Christianese. Uh, chances are you speak uh, uh, a little, there's, there's a little way that you will present things that perhaps you are used to saying or used to hearing, but in reality, for somebody who's outside of the faith or very new to the faith, it may not make sense at all. So for example, sometimes when we're praying for someone and they need to be protected, we'd say, Lord, would you put around them a what? A uh, hedge of protection right a hedge of protection now you would think if we really wanted them protected we would pray that god would put something a little more sturdy than a hedge right because if you look at a hedge it's really not like the greatest thing to protect people from i mean you know pray that you put a wall of protection or some something concrete something you know father in heaven would you put barbed wire around them lord like would you do something effective but we're just used to saying you know we put a hedge of protection around them now best as i can tell This is not completely unscriptural. If you read the book of Job, uh, Satan, so we're imitating something Satan said. That's probably not cool. But Satan says to the Lord, of course, Job loves you. Have you not put a hedge around everything he owns? And that would make sense because back in those days, and particularly in the Middle East when wild animals back before the, you know, in, in Old Testament times when wild animals were much more much more prevalent, a hedge, a thick hedge with thorns and briars and whatever else goes in this thick hedge, would make it hard for a, an animal to get through and would hopefully deter them. So it would make sense, but when we say it, it's kind of, I don't know about you, but... A bush comes to mind. Uh, Sometimes when we want people to pray for us, we say that we would, hey, I would really covet your prayers. And this is particularly awkward if you've just taught on the Ten Commandments, because one of the Ten Commandments is you should not covet. So it's like, you know, you covet, or is like, hey, I lust after you. What? Wait, that's awkward. Like, no, it's not. Why do we covet after prayers? Why would you say, do not covet, but I covet your prayers? And I've posted this on Facebook before, coveting your prayers for sermon preparation. You know, we say things that we're just used to saying, but it's just kind of Christianese. Now, I don't know where that comes from. I do know that in the King James, the old King James, um, in 1 Corinthians 12, where we would say we're to earnestly desire the greater gift. If you read the old King James, it would say, covet the greater gift. Covet the greater gift. Maybe it comes from that. I don't know. But it's church talk. It's Christianese. You know what? When I look at you, I can see Christ living in you. You know, when, when I, the more time I spend around this person, I can see Christ. I just get a sense that Christ is in you. Is that Christianese? Is that just church talk? If someone says, I see Christ living in you, what does that mean? Is that just a a saying that's become popular? Maybe had scriptural roots, you know, the whole hedge of protection thing, but it just doesn't, it's hard to make sense of it now. Or is it a thing? Christ living in us. So it's not Christianese, uh, because we see in verse 27 of our text today, Colossians 1 and verse 27, to them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is, there it is, Christ in you, the hope of glory. It's not Christianese, it's a thing, it's in the Bible, it's, it's, it's a scriptural reference There it is. Paul refers to Christ living in the Colossian Christians, Christ in you, the hope of glory. Now, what I'm going to do, this is not in your outline because I came up with these after I did the outline. But here's a series of verses. If you wanted to see some other verses that pertain to Christ living in you, I'm going to read them off. And if you'd like to look them up on your own time, have at it. 2 Corinthians 13.5 says, do you not realize this about yourself that Jesus Christ is in you? Romans 8.10, but if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. Galatians 2.20, a very popular verse. I've been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Galatians 4.19, my little children for whom I am again in the anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. Paul says Ephesians 3 17 so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith that you being rooted and grounded in love there's lots of different verses that talk about Christ being in you and as great as it is to laugh at ourselves and the silly things we find ourselves sometimes saying we want to make sure we don't lump the true living breathing word of God in that same category and chuckle away oh that's so so cute he said he sees Christ in me oh that's so whoa that's a thing. Christ really is in me. That's actually, a scriptural, that's actually a scriptural thing. It's not related to any older version of the Bible or something that we have to say, well, you know, back in the days when that was written, that's, that was a thing. And you have to try to jump through some cultural hula hoops or something like that to try to understand what it's saying. Christ lives in you as a Christian. Jesus is God. That's a big deal. In fact, it's such a big deal that if you don't believe he's God, it's caused to question your faith entirely. We spoke about that last week. But if you're a Christian today, Jesus is in you. And that's also a really big deal. So today we're going to unpack that a bit. We're going to focus on Colossians 1 verses 24 through 29, the scripture that we read before and draw out three things of what it means to have Christ living in us. What does this mean to have Christ living in us? Well, let's start in verse 24 and you'll see that Christ living in us means our suffering is reason to rejoice. Colossians 1 verse 24 says, now I rejoice in my suffering for your sake. And in my flesh, I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body. That is the church. Now, we're actually going to spend a fairly significant amount of time in this particular verse and on this particular point. Because at first glance, it can be pretty hard to understand and therefore easy to misunderstand. Why should we be willing to suffer with joy? Why would one suffer with joy? Is that not one of the most counterintuitive things ever? That I would suffer in this life and have joy. Well, our suffering, as Paul is saying, is a sign that Christ really is alive and actively working in us. Now, there's lots of different types of suffering in the world. So let's categorize a few. So this doesn't, because this doesn't apply to all suffering. Okay. Some people suffer and it's because of their own doing. They make unwise choices and therefore suffer as a result. So if you cut someone off on the highway and the person starts screaming expletives at you and all sorts of colorful metaphors, it's not because of the fish that was on you. I'm just suffering for Jesus. No, it's because you cut them off. Sometimes people suffer because they're stupid. So it's not, 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 this is not, Paul was not suffering because he was stupid, but let's Suffice it to say, there's, sometimes we suffer because we make stupid decisions. But the suffering in which Paul rejoices in isn't because he did something stupid. Some people suffer, and it's not a result of their own doing, but just the result of living in a in a fallen world. People die unexpectedly. Um, people lose jobs. People feel lonely or confused. Or Sleep deprived or we mourn the loss of a loved one who passed on to eternity a lot earlier than we'd expected. And the list goes on and on and on. And these are, these are sad things. People have maladies and illnesses that they did absolutely nothing to receive. And these are sad things. And that's the, that, that's what it's like living on this side of heaven, right? That's what it's like living in this world. And that's that's really, really sad, and we look forward to living in a world one day with our Lord and Savior where these things will be no more, where there'll be no more weeping, there'll be no more pain, there'll be no more sorrow, there'll be no more, no more death, no more suffering. Until then, we live here. But that's also not what, Paul is, uh, not what Paul is referring to directly when he speaks about suffering here. It's not in what he rejoices in. Here, Paul is rejoicing in his sufferings because of Christ and because of his church. Look at verse 24. I want you to see that. I rejoice in my sufferings for what? For your sake, for your sake. And in my flesh, I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body. He rejoices because as Jesus took his place on the cross, Paul is, in a sense, taking Jesus' place on the ground. Now, let me try to explain that to you. Look at Colossians 1 verse 24 again. We have this weird saying that kind of throws us through a loop, right? And in my flesh, I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. Now, this is a difficult text, uh, particularly the portion that says that, that Paul is filling up what is lacking. At first glance, one might be tempted to think Christ's death on the cross was in some way lacking, And you can't really blame him. It seems to say that right there. You don't have to stretch the text. It's, wow, wait a minute. Paul is doing something because Christ's death was lacking and Paul's suffering to some degree is like bridging the gap. Is Paul picking up where Jesus left off? People might believe that. In fact, not only might people believe that many people do believe that. Uh, I myself am a former Roman Catholic and those who ascribed to Roman Catholicism, have a misunderstanding of what Jesus did on the cross, and it tends to permeate a lot of what they believe. Roman Catholics believe in a place called purgatory, uh, and they define it as a place or condition of temporal punishment for those who, departing this life in God's grace, are not entirely free from faults. So there's this place called purgatory. See, Catholics believe that Jesus paid it almost and that for that which was not covered, uh, for the sins that remain, I can go to purgatory and 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 kind of you know suffer to a certain degree, so we can get those things taken care of before I would go into heaven. It's kind of like you know that part that's seen in the Wizard of Oz. That's how we left the day away in the Mary. And you know they're like stuffing the scarecrow and and cleaning the Tin Man. Do you remember? Can you even dye my eyes to get my remember? Golly all the time. Come on. You you know what I'm I'm talking about? Thank you. Be with me here. Okay. It's kind of like that, like preparing to see the big guy, but you got to go through this process. So it's like that. There's probably less singing and a lot more pain. Uh, But that's this belief of purgatory. Why? Because there's, there's obviously something that was lacking in what Jesus did on the cross because Jesus paid a lot of it, but you still got to pay a little in purgatory. Christians know the Bible teaches that Jesus paid it all, not almost, but all, when he died on the cross. Colossians 2 and 14, and you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive, dead to life. That's like all the way to dead to all the way alive. Not almost, not kind of alive, not I'm only mostly dead. Dead, alive. You he made alive. Together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. Now, in your outline, you'll see that I listed Colossians 2 and verse 14. And you'll see that there's some emphasis that I've added. I've put something in bold there. And you, let's read those. If it's bold-faced, I want you to read that aloud with me right now. Okay? We ready? Here we go. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh... God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. Does it sound like there's anything left to be done? Or does it sound like when Jesus said it is finished, he really, really meant it? The writer of Hebrews in chapter 10 and verse 12 says, but when Christ had offered for all time, a single sacrifice, how many sacrifices, a single sacrifices for sins. He sat down at the right hand of God. Verse 14 says, for by a single offering, he has perfected for all time. Those who are being sanctified, single sacrifice, sat down, It's finished. He's perfected it. You were dead. You've been made alive. He's canceled it. He's wiped out the writing of requirements. He's nailed it to the cross. It is finished. And when Jesus was taken off the cross, that wasn't to make room for you to climb on up. There's nothing lacking in Jesus' death on the cross for us. It was paid in full. Jesus absorbed the wrath that we rightly deserve as sinners. And in so doing, saved my soul. And God was completely satisfied. So you'll never be called to take his place on the cross. But listen. As a Christian, you will never be called to suffer for your own salvation, to gain your own salvation. You will never be called to take his place on the cross, but you have been called to take his place on the ground. You have been called to take the place of Christ on the ground, on the earth. And I put a quote in your outline from William Hendrickson, and it says this. We should bear in mind that although Christ, by means of the afflictions which he endured... Rendered complete satisfaction to God so that Paul is able to glory in nothing but the cross. But the enemies of Christ were not satisfied. They hated Jesus with insatiable hatred and wanted to add to his afflictions. But since he is no longer physically present on earth, their arrows, which are meant especially for him, strike his followers. It is in that sense that all true believers are in his stead supplying what as the enemy see it is lacking in the afflictions which Jesus endured. Christ's afflictions overflow toward us. Jesus' work on the cross, completely done, paid in full, finished, forever. Jesus' work on earth in process. In process, not completely done, still happening, still acting, still moving, still saving, still helping, still living in you and in me. See, God the Father was and is eternally satisfied with his son's payment for our sins. Completely satisfied, not satisfied if he's in a good mood, not sometimes gets up and thinks, oh, but I can't believe that. No, okay, I'll just set it aside. He doesn't struggle like that. He's completely satisfied with what Jesus did on the cross. So let's make this differentiation that might seem small, but in reality really is huge. Some think Christians suffer because the world hates everything Christ stands for. And that's not altogether false. The world does hate what Christ stands for. But that's not enough to say that we suffer because non-Christians disagree with Christian ideology. It's not all up here. That falls short. Something Christians suffer because the world in which we live uh, doesn't like that we remind them of Jesus, and that frustrates them. And again, not altogether false. I once knew a grandmother who struggled with anger towards her grandson who looked like her former son-in-law, who had left and abandoned the family. So this grandma, does that make sense? Can you follow that? So that grandmother was really re- she would just she would, oh, she would just get so angry at this grandson who just had this guy's DNA and looked like him and had some of his mannerisms, but she would get really really mad and scream things in foreign languages and would be upset because you know, she he reminds her of him. That's partially true, I think when it comes to us as Christians, but let's face it, folks, people have never seen Christ. Particularly the lost would be largely unfamiliar with what he's even like. Now, I hope we resemble Jesus in, in every way. And I'm sure that has an impact on others' opinions of us, but it's not our impressions of Jesus that draws persecution. Listen, you've got to get this. We are persecuted because Jesus is living in us. Watch. So it stands to reason that they hit you, hoping to hit him. Does that make sense? You're in the way. He's in you. They're going for him. But since he doesn't manifest himself physically on earth, he ascended into heaven, is seated at the right hand of the Father, interceding for us. They go for him, but in order to get him, they have to what? Hit you. You. So it's not like, oh, it's because we resemble him. No, no, you embody him. He's, he's in you. They're going for him. They've got to get through you. The, 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 does that make sense? So it's not just, oh, you act like Jesus and that ticks them off. It's, it's really more than that. It's not just, oh, you said something offensive and that upsets them. It's more than that. He is alive in you. So in order for them to get him, they've got to get you. They come at you hard and strong and with everything they've got because they're after not you, not not even Christians, not even our ideals, but they're after Christ Himself. And he shows himself to be alive by living in you, and they want him dead. Does that make sense? So that puts Scriptures like Mark thirteen thirteen into a whole new light. And you will be hated by all for my name's sake, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. John 15, verses 18 and following. If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, you, you, the world would love you as its own, but because you are not of the world, I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. But all these things they will do to you on account of what? My name. Because they do not know him who sent me. And they may not even realize that's what they're doing. But that's what persecution is. It's not an attack on you. It's really not personal to you. It's an affront on Jesus Christ himself. 2 Corinthians 1 and verse 5, For as we share abundantly in Christ's sufferings, so through Christ we share abundantly in, in comfort too. You'll never be called to take Christ's place on the cross. He's finished that work in saving you, but you will be called and have been called to take his place on the ground, calling you to suffer because he lives in you. Let me ask you a question. How are you responding to the areas in your life where God has seen fit to allow suffering? That's a general question. How are you responding to the areas in your life? There may be many. I'm sure they're varied in a crowd this size of what suffering looks like to you. How are you responding to those? Now, more specifically... Are there areas in your life where God has called you to suffer because he lives in you and you're suffering because Jesus lives in you? How do you respond to those? Or this, are there areas in your life that in order to be bold for Christ, in order to take a stand, to have the courage to stand or the confidence to speak, you avoid because it would bring about suffering? Can you count it as joy to suffer in Christ's stead? Can you count it as a joyful thing to take Christ's place here on the ground? Because that's what Paul is saying. You will be called to take his place on earth in suffering, but also in another way. And that brings us to our second point. Christ living in us means we're stewards of the gospel. And so we serve others with a purpose, the building up of the body of Christ. Look at Colossians 1 in your Bible in verse 24, the second part. It says, for the sake of his body, that is the church. That's who he suffers for. For the sake of his body, that is the church, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known. Uh, here's, Here's a question. Is anyone in here, would you do me a favor, raise your hand high, raise your hand really high, if you happen to be right now, if you're 33 years old. Okay, you're 33, you're 33, you're 33, you're 33. Christ's life was short. Christ's life, Christ lived to be about 33 years old. His life was really short. And the portion of his life when he was fully active in ministry was even shorter. It was about three years. So for those of you who raised your hand and said you're 33... The portion of his most effective ministry before he would be crucified for our sins was just the last three years of your life, 30 to 33. Think about what has taken place over the last three years of your life and picture it as if you're, en- you're nearing the end of your life. That's it. Christ had a very short life here on earth. He was fully active in ministry, and was, uh, but, but it was even shorter for those years. It was just three years. He didn't get to go everywhere. He didn't get to preach everywhere, and he didn't get to perform miracles everywhere, and he didn't get to introduce himself to everyone and everywhere, and so Christ dies on the cross, is buried, rises again, stays on earth for 40 days, and then ascends into heaven. And then our work began and continues to this day. I mean, do you, do you think I give you door hangers because I get a referral bonus if people show up? It's not the way it works. Our work continues to this day because Jesus' work on earth was done personally. And now he lives in each and every one of you so that you can impact lives. In your circles of influence or for you to go to a circle of influence that the Lord may have you have that you may not even know about. And it could be locally on a college campus partnering with people like Isaac and Faith Cain. Or Lewis and Megan Kurt as they seek to in- impact students for the glory of God. Or it could be considering going overseas and being part of a, a group of, within our church that is considering going way over there. Not just over there but way over there to an unreached people group. So that they might be saved. Why? Because Jesus never got there. I mean, Jesus fell short. No, it means the plan was for Jesus to do exactly what he did and for people like you and like me to pick up where he left off. He finished everything on the cross, but now there's work to be done. Why do we have to go there? Because Jesus never did. And we pick up where he left off. Look at Colossians 1 and verse 25. It says, Paul knows he's a steward a steward that's the greek word oikonomia which means the management of a household but watch this specifically the management or oversight of another's property but paul knows he's a property manager that's not like a glorified hoa and stuff but i mean paul knows that he's a property manager he's he is managing something that is not his own but he's been entrusted with it and 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 we're so can 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 i say this We're property managers of the gospel. It's not ours. We can partake in it. We get to enjoy it. It belongs to the Lord. And God has entrusted us with it to manage it well. And we manage it well as good stewards. verse 25, as good stewards by making the word fully known. We want to make the word fully known to people. The lost unto salvation and the saved unto sanctification. And as stewards, we've been entrusted with something, the gospel of Jesus Christ. We, we serve for the purpose and we toil and we suffer and we struggle for the purpose of building up the body of Christ, the church. That's what Paul says in Ephesians 4, uh, to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ. Until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood. In Colossians 1 and verse 28, Paul says we have a goal to present everyone mature in Christ. That's our goal. Our goal is to, prevent, is to present everyone mature in Christ. And you know what? That's dog hard. That's really, really, really hard. Presenting everyone mature in Christ. Keep your finger in Colossians and would you flip over to 2 Corinthians chapter 12. 2 Corinthians chapter 12. And I want to show you something that I've read, I don't know how many times before. But just in preparing for this sermon this week, it just just stood out to me. Look what Paul does here. 2 Corinthians 12, verses 14 and following. He's writing to the Corinthians. Listen to what Paul says. Here for the third time, I am ready to come to you. And I will not be a burden, for I seek not what is yours, but to save for you. Uh, Excuse me. Not what is yours, but you. For children are not obligated to save up for their parents, but parents for their children. I will most, look at verse 15. I will most gladly spend and be spent for your souls i will most gladly spend and be spent for your souls do you ever your parents want to visit you and they're like hey listen i was thinking of swinging by i promise it won't be a burden i'll just stay a short while you can just continue doing what you're going to do do you, do you know what i mean sometimes your parents may want to spend that time with you doesn't it sound like that's what paul is saying He's speaking to them like he's their dad. Hey, listen, I long to come to you. I'm not going to be a burden. I, I just I would really want to come to you, and it's not your job for, to, to do anything special for me. And then in verse 15, he says, I will most gladly spend and be spent for your souls. Here's a man, Paul, an unmarried man, no kids, referring to his ministry to the church as a dad would his kids. And there's a reason. Do you know why? He wants to see them mature. Just like a father would his kids. Just like a mother would her kids. Wanted to see them mature. Good parents sacrifice for their kids. Good parents sacrifice for their kids. And not all the sacrificing is done the same way. But parents sacrifice for their kids. You hear me talk about my mom a lot. She worked as a school secretary till 2.30. Was home by 3.30. Had dinner on the table by 4.30. And was donning a Toys R Us uniform and ringing out people by 6.00 that sacrifice. Not everybody sacrifices in that same way. Not all parents are called to make a sacrifice as a single parent. Mom was called to sacrifice in that way, and she wasn't wanting to. It's just what the Lord had her for. But all parents sacrifice. Parents sacrifice sleep. Raise your hand if you agree with me. Parents sacrifice sleep. Yeah. There was a time when uh, we just weren't sleeping well at home, and, uh, and I was kind of Sarah said sleep might, be, might have been becoming an idol in my life at the time. Hmm. And she's looked at me and she said, listen, Peter, we've got four kids from 12 to 2. I don't think we're going to sleep well for like 18 years. Like at least the next 18 years. There's going to be in some way, shape, or form. If we're not having to get up to tend to them, we're going to be concerned about them. There's, just, just get over it. Build a bridge, buddy, and get over it. And she's, she's right. Silas... Um, will only, nobody puts Silas to sleep like dad. Now, I don't know why. I don't know why, but if, if Silas is up at night and Sarah goes in, um, it just takes her a long time to get him to lay down. If I go in and I hold him, he puts his little head on my shoulder and he goes right to sleep. Isn't that sweet? (laughs) Right. See, right. So it's kind of sweet, but then it's like, Hey, wait, Oh, So like every time I've got it, and it makes sense because I could literally, I don't know why, I'm the Silas Whisperer, I don't know why. The child goes to sleep right away. Parents sacrifice sleep. Parents sacrifice time. Parents feel an extra heavy burden to fight sin in their life because they want to please God, but they also know they're trying to model it for their kids who they want to present mature in Christ. But it's yet another reason Christ is living in you. See, here in Colossians, Paul rejoiced in his sufferings because he knew it was because Christ was alive in him. And so he was taking Christ's place on earth in suffering him, and in, in suffering for him and in serving for him as Paul served the church, as Christ would have if he were here. But he's not here. He's in heaven and inside of Paul. And so we take Paul's place on earth and take Christ's place on earth and to serve and to equip the body to grow and to mature and become more like Christ. Look again at Colossians 1 and verse 25. Christ works in us to help make the word fully known. So you hear me on Sundays saying, "Hey, if you want to join a if you want to join a, a small group, join a small group. If you want to join a serve team?" You think, "Oh, that's just that's the opening line. Join a small group, join a serve team." John and Stacy Wingfield are on our setup team. They're also in my small group. They serve with joy. No one in the church has a bigger smile than John Wingfield. No one. No one in the church has had just. He's just. He's always. I don't even know where you are right now. But you serve with joy. You serve tirelessly. Do you know why they do that? To help make the word fully known. To help present people mature in Christ. It's not. We just need. It's just a thing. We need things done by them doing that by our setup team doing that. They help make the word fully known. They're helping people to mature in Christ. But they're not preaching, I know it would be really, but I would be down here and screaming if things wouldn't be things wouldn't be set up. they help make the word fully known. Joe and Katie Zerner are in children's ministry and whatever they oversee Kate oversees children's ministry, and Joe oversees whatever he's willing to serve in whatever capacity you would call him to he's helping in children's ministry and he's putting a flat screen TV up on the wall and he's he's telling me things that I need to know, and helping me out, and putting together a hutch in the front of a classroom, and why? It needs to be done. They're helping to make the word fully known, helping to present everyone mature in in Christ. Does that that make sense? It's not, we just got to get it done. I got to do stuff. We got stuff that needs to be done. We're a small church. We got to you need to connect it to what Paul connects it to, helping to make the word fully known, helping to present people mature in Christ, get it out of the to-do list, the pragmatism list that just, oh, I just got to get it done. So someone's got to do it. Many hands make light work and we're a small church and we don't want people to burn out. All that stuff is true, but you need to see the bigger picture. We're helping to make the word fully known. Small group leaders and counselors helping to make the word fully known, and that's hard. I lost sleep this past week over a, a over a, a meeting I had with a couple that it just weighed on me. And you know what I said in confession to someone else? I'm, I'm, this is not in the notes. I can't believe I'm, I'm going to say this. Can you believe I'm going to say this? I'm going to say this. It would be so much easier. I would just wish I didn't care. I just wish I didn't care. I'm losing sleep because I care. It would just be easier if I could just be like. And you do that as small group leaders, as counselors, as youth leaders, as people who work on campus ministry, as people who get involved in people's lives, people who serve together. You struggle. You struggle. That's the word that he uses. Look at verse 29. For this I toil, struggling. But this is cool. Struggling with all whose energy? With all his energy that he powerfully works within me to present people mature in Christ. This is what it means to have Christ living in you. Christ is in you, the hope of glory. You're going to take his place on earth, which means you're going to do what he did on earth in suffering. So buckle up. And in serving. Serving by bringing the word to people who don't know. And struggling. that Struggling. Toiling. For this I toil. To present everyone mature in Christ. Are you devoted to the same goal as Paul? The building up of others in Christ. How has God called you to struggle to that end? What would God have you sacrifice? Time, emotion, energy, something else that the Lord would have you sacrifice so his energy might work powerfully in you and through you to impact other people's lives for the sake of the gospel. So Jesus is God. Is God, always was God, always will be God. We looked at that last week. That's a glorious announcement that the babe in the manger is God. But now I want you to also know that Jesus Christ lives in you. If you're a Christian today, okay. if you're a Christian, Jesus lives in you. If you're not a Christian, then Jesus does not not live in you. He's not trying to... He's trying to get in, but you're pushing him away. He's not in you, but he can be in you if you would call upon the name of the Lord to be saved. If you would place your trust in Jesus Christ, if you would look to him and say, I'm not bringing anything to the table except what you did for me on the cross. I believe what you did for me on the cross is sufficient to pay for my sins. That when you said it is finished, it really is finished. You can be saved. Jesus Christ saves sinners just like you and like me and that's good news that's a glorious announcement and that's what we celebrate at christmas god in the flesh saving sinners like you and like me and living within us to impact the world for his name's sake let's pray lord i want to thank you for saving us I want to thank you for the example that you set in your life here on earth. And Lord, I want to thank you for making your home within us, your abode, your dwelling place. Lord, we are humbled to have been made stewards of the gospel. Lord, to be made property managers, to be in charge of of something that is not our own. Lord, we are humbled and honored to have been called to that work. Lord, show us what it means to have you living in us. Show us how we might rejoice in the suffering that you've called us to go through because they're coming after our Savior. Show us what it means, Lord, to toil, to struggle, to present people mature in Christ, Lord, to serve one another in that way, to love one another in that way. Lord, how might we suffer, struggle, toil, because we have you in us. We pray, Lord, that you would continually show us areas in our life where we might be changed by your word. And we trust that you will do this for us and ask this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and our Savior, who lives in his children. We pray this. Amen.